Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alan Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Fadia Tabit, a Yemeni conflict analysis and peacebuilding practitioner. Fadia worked on countering violent extremism, or CVE, programs in the MENA region, focusing on al-Qaeda and ISIS movements and gender-based violence prevention. In this episode, Alan and Fadia discuss child soldiers and child recruitment in the war in Yemen, the roles of both Saudi Arabia and Iran in the war, and the April ceasefire, which has just ended. Again, thank you so much, Fadia, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I was really looking forward to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, thank really you so good. much for thank you so much for having me, and also like back and forth with kind of like conflict in our schedule, both of us. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, I I know you have had you have a tremendous um, experience uh, on the issue of child abuse, specifically in war zone, mm-hmm. and and uh, and you are you've been. Uh, First, had witness about the horror that's been taking place in Yemen and the war between the Houthis and the officially sort of central government. Mm-hmm. And uh, sadly, tragically, I should say, the Saudi Arabia, along with the United Arab Emirates, with the indirect support, both military and otherwise, by the United States and other powers, this war has been going on now for from 2014 nearly eight years, seven, eight years. And luckily, of course, now we have some, some kind of ceasefire which has been holding. But before we get to, to get to the, the, the ceasefire, I would like to hear from you some of what you have been seeing and experiencing, and then we can engage in sort of a discussion. Uh, needless to say, I'm a, 100% on the same page with you as far as uh, your views and analysis, but perhaps for our audience, we can share some of our, you know, your personal experience in particular. And and um, what are the things probably that can be done to prevent this horror uh, enlisting children uh, in war to fight as soldiers, you know, children soldiers, which is against international law, against human law, against uh, any morals that we have, we also have. So, so tell me, you, you, you will take from your experience at this at this point, what it is that you have been witnessing and what are you doing at this juncture in order to bring to the attention of the international community what's been going on in Yemen? So when you look at the war in Yemen, you have to look at the two different time frames. One of them, when the Arab Spring started in the MENA region, North Africa, when all of the youth marched and protests in the street, in the streets for freedom, liberty, a better life, a better future. That era was a whole different what right now Yemen live, live in. Um, so when I started my work in child protection as a, child, as a program officer with children affected by armed conflict, particularly children, um, child soldiers, I started in 2011. And by the time... As, as I want to say that Yemen was going through a really hard time with the Arab Spring, we were focusing on Al-Qaeda. There was that time when the government collapsed in Yemen in 2011. A lot of people marched on the streets um, uh, demanding for a, a better future, a better life. But Al-Qaeda, by the time in 2011, raised up because of the government did not have a strong presence. 
And that's when my work actually started with child soldiers. We were focusing, I was focusing on children that have um, been recruited by Ansar al-Sharia. I'm sure you are familiar with that. It's a branch group in the Middle East, specifically in the Arab region, uh, been rising part of Al-Qaeda in, uh, uh, in Yemen. If I may ask you, were you there during this period? Yes. yes. You were in Yemen. So you yes. were pretty much an eyewitness. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember that Al-Qaeda took uh, over Abiyan, which is a, a small provinces in, uh, in South Yemen. They took control for almost a year and a half of that city. And I did, that's actually kind of like how my project started. We have witnesses that there was a need for reporting those human rights, especially children being recruited by Al-Qaeda. Um, so yes, I was there in 2011. We have seen that there was a need to report about human rights violation and child recruitment within Al-Qaeda. By the time, we did not focus on any other groups. We were focusing on Al-Qaeda. There was a lot of human rights uh, violation that we witnessed. And to be honest, that we started our project, and it was the first and the only project focused on child recruitment in Yemen, in the entire country. I so it was, it was a new territory. It was a new approach. Uh, we didn't know how people and community leaders will receive this kind of like initiatives. So at the beginning of the work, we did our... I don't want to call it an intervention because the intervention is supposed to be before anything bad happened. We actually came after the chaos to report about those children being recruited by Al-Qaeda, by Ansar al-Sharia in Abiyan in 2000. So we started, we started reporting. We have seen a lot of children under age 15, not 18, um, being recruited by Ansar al-Sharia. It was something that... In my age, probably, I haven't witnessed. I mean, maybe my parents, maybe my grandparents. It was a shocking for me to see. We, we, you know, in Yemen, there is always have been a presence of Al Qaeda, right? We, yes. We're not gonna, we're not gonna deny that. Yes. Um, but they rise within the chaos of the Arab Spring and the absence of the government, strong governments and military, because they were focusing on the Arab Spring and people in the north. Um, so for me, that was kind of like a bit of um, a shocking moment to realize that a lot of these, we have been hearing about child recruitment in Africa, uh, in, in Europe, uh, but I haven't myself witnessed that. After a year and a half of working in this project, we discovered that children, be not, but not, children were not only recruited by Al-Qaeda, children were recruited by other groups. I'm talking here about the Yemeni government in 2011. Yeah. I'm talking about, um, small groups that have been kind of like um, um, active in North Yemen. They were kind of like recruited, uh, they were recruiting children. Ansar al-Sharia is one of them. So my work started focusing on Al-Qaeda and then it's just like expand uh -huh. dramatically. Um, and we started seeing less and less and less of other groups, whether that official groups or extremist groups. And we started reporting that. So when I'm talking about reporting, and this is kind of like something that I want to explain to the audience. Identify other group Ansar Sharia. Yeah, we. I'm talking about certain um, uh, groups in the Yemeni uh, military government. Uh -huh. uh, we are talking about certain rebels in, like we discovered that the Houthi also recruited some children in Yemen, in North Yemen. 
So we have seen other groups that have been kind of like started rec recruiting children just for to serve their agendas and their causes. Um, we started kind of like we started doing a lot of child um, um, child rights human uh, violation reporting, and I want to kind of like this is more of the point that I want to talk about. When we're talking about reporting, we are talking about you have to build a case. So I'm gonna I'm, it's kind of like it's kind of like an attorney building a case. You have to have witnesses. You have to meet. Uh, you have to have a meeting with um, any witnesses or parents of those children. You have to document if those children being killed, so you have to go to the hospital uh, to document or take pictures to document. You have to get a death certificate. So in order for an international community, by the time we were working with children affected by armed conflict, which is a huge branch within uh, UN child soldiers that focusing on children affected by armed conflict, um, and it has a huge history. It's, it's part of the UN Resolution 1612. The audience can definitely look that up. Um, and in terms of the international community to take action, you have to have a proper documentation for those violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so every case that we've been building, you have to build it in a way and report it in a very classified system that will go to the UNICEF and then from the UNICEF will go to the UN Children Affected by Armed Conflict 1612. And we have been seeing kind of like cases been piling and piling and piling. But some of the things that kind of like struck me, to be honest, um, because we worked with those kids after they've been recruited, I, I want to admit it that we did not do a prevention. Um, we did, we kind of like came in after those children been recruted. We prevented a couple. So after they've been, you've been, when they were released, you spoke with yeah. them after yes. they were released? Yes. Okay. Yeah. After they were released, after they were dumped out from the, the, the Al-Qaeda group because they are not useful anymore. Just before we move, when you say they were released, they were released voluntarily. What did it, what does it bring about the release of these children after yeah. they they serve a certain period of time, or what are the, under what circumstances yeah. are they released? Yes, I was about to I was about to kind of like touch on that. As I said, there are there were some children were used in the front lines, got shot in the eye. Uh, been uh, close to a grenade and explode and lost one of their legs or one of their hands. So some of these children are not, would not be something that the Al-Qaeda or Ansar al-Sharia will take benefit from. So after they took the benefit from, they dumped them out. I wouldn't say they released them. I see. So then when you talk about release, they release those have been injured. Exactly. Men, not those who are already still functioning uh, you know, as, as uh, child soldiers. Correct, correct. And also, like, one of the stories that I heard myself and I witnessed, because I took on those children to provide medical support for those kids. We, I have seen kids who their legs were amputated, and they told us a story about how they got recruited. I have seen kids who've been shot in the eye just because they were in the front lines with Ansar al-Sharia. And that by the time when Ansar Sharia was claiming that they are fighting the government. So again, it's just like a, it's, their mission was just like to take control of Abiyan, a province, a small province in South Yemen, um, um, to fight against the government. So I have kind of like collected those stories. And, and it was a shocking moment to realize how the narrative that Al-Qaeda used to recruit those kids. You would think that just kind of like, 
sitting in your desk or we are kind of like sitting in our desks and being kind of like in headquarters, you think that how those, I'm sure that this narrative that Al-Qaeda have been using, it's a very complicated narrative. You have to think about two factors. It's the push and pull factors. Some of these kids were pushed by their communities because they had to secure income for their families. And some of these kids were actually pulled to Al-Qaeda or Ansar al-Sharia groups because they were fascinated by the equipments, by the strength, yeah. by yeah. the presence of those power in, I mean, in their streets. Yeah. I remember one of, my, one of the stories that I heard um, from one of my kids. I called them my kids, although they were kind of like cases. But it's hard to separate yourself from 10 years old, just kind of like and you deal with them as numbers. It's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, one of them said that um, he was going back and forth. Ansar al-Sharia presence were kind of like very strong. And he was sitting on a rock just kind of like watching the Al-Qaeda or the um, Ansar al-Sharia tank. He was fascinated how big that was. And he was 10 years old. So yeah. one, of, one of the Ansar al-Sharia's um, soldiers saw him come, saw that kid coming over and over and over. He approached him and he said that, what are you doing here? And he was just like, I'm just kind of, I want to see the tank from the inside. And he was just like, why don't you come and jump in and see, I'll, I'll show it to you. So that kind of like, that kind of like small narrative that you're playing with the, you give those kids that power, you give those kids those kind of like, you can do anything. You are serving the cause of, um, um, of God. Like some of the stories that we heard, it's, um, it's interesting because they use some of these kids as shield where they put a bomb and they use them as an exploded in kind of like explosion as uh, a bomb explosion um, in kind of like in a, in a fish market or something like that. And some of these stories that I, I witnessed and I heard myself that, it's interesting, I think I'm going to say this for the first time. Um, they put some perfumes in their belt. And those those um, bombs built around um, around those kids, and they and they told them that when you're gonna die, you're gonna you have to face God with a good smell. You're gonna go to heaven. So kind of like that small narrative that I'm sure you are aware of, and I'm sure kind of like you know coming from the Middle Eastern culture and coming from kind of like um, 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 tradition, some of these kids were kind of like were vulnerable to be recruited. Just oh, kind of. Like, I mean, kids in general are very impressionable. Yeah. They like to, you know, join. They're fascinated by military equipment. Right. Fascinated by this heavy hardware, and it's very luring for them. When right. they're invited, you know, they welcome this kind of thing, and they, in the process, they don't know it, but they're indoctrinated. Exactly. And that would be easy, much easier to recruit. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's one kind of like, that's how we started. And then moving forward, so we started in 2011. Moving forward, we witnessed that more and kids and kids kind of like got recruited, as I said, from different groups for the certain causes. The government were recruited, some of these children to fight in another govern, another provinces in, in South Yemen called Adala, a small, for a small fight. Uh, we report a Yemeni government brigade. I think that the number was 32 by the time. So we've been kind of like, we, we did not just only focus on Ansar Sharia, but that was the start. Um, and then in 2000, I would say 2012, I believe, 2012, the end of 2012, 
um, I led a mission to go to Abian provinces to see the, the, the chaos, the catastrophe that uh, Al-Qaeda left, because they left. And you know why they left? Because there was another rise of Al-Qaeda and Arab Spring in Syria. So that was another territory that pulled a lot of the extremists to join. Yeah. So that they just they just left. And by the time we went there and I led them I led the UN mission, it is I remember that driving, we were kind of like in a UN convoy and we were driving and you see you literally kind of like you stand you step out of the car, you're standing maybe like ten feet away from a landmine. Yeah. 10, 10 feet away from another ten, a dead body. So that was for me, that was kind of like um, another shocking moment to see the catastrophe that they left. We thought that we will kind of like build Abian again. There was a lot of UN and international agencies that did a lot of humanitarian developments and developments in, in the region. And then there was another rise of Al-Houthis in North Yemen. And that was a whole different approach for them. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I'm kind of like jumping here between the timelines. And from 2012 to 2014, as you said, when um, the Houthis kind of like, you know, um, rised up in Yemen mm -hmm. and the war erupted between Saudi coalitions and, and the Houthi militia. Um, it's interesting because I was, this is, a, this is an interesting part, because I was in a training with high-rank military, Yemeni military government about child protection and what needs to be done. Because with all the work that we have done in the past, and we actually documented cases that the Yemeni government recruited children under age 15, we were able to, with working closely with the Yemeni government, in, in these kind of like scenarios, you report the Yemeni government, but also at the same time, you have to work with them to make kind of like policy change, to make um, impact. So we work with them closely. We reported all of these cases. Luckily that with the international community, we were able to sign an action plan. In, in May 2014, we were able to sign an action plan with the Yemeni government to stop child recruitment in the military. And do you know how we did that? And did they really stop? Well, when you look at when when you look at the time frame, so it was May two thousand fourteen, and then you look at the the Houthis um, and so the Arabian War. So it would it didn't have that much of time to see or witness uh, the so, evidence. So when, so when the conflict started, so is the the Yemeni government continue the practice of recruiting children? That's for me, I would say that's for me hard to say because there was no cause for them to recruit more children. They were, they made an obligations. There was a huge ceremony in, in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, with the prime minister holding signs, no more recruiting children. There was a huge action plan signed. And we have to also like think about it is an action plan. It's not an executive order. So they need to be compliant with this action plan. So it wasn't... So when the conflict started, did you have an opportunity to investigate to see if the government continues the practice, continues the practice or you didn't have a chance to review that? Yeah, I, I would definitely say I didn't have a chance to, re to review that because within, within a few months, you have the rise of al-Houthis in, in, uh, in North Yemen and the war started with Saudi Arabia and the Yemeni, uh, sorry, and the Houthi militias. So 
technically, we didn't have time to implement or see the impact of that action plan from at least from the Yemeni government, because we always know that you can hold accountable a Yemeni government. It's hard to hold accountable an extremist group. But you yeah. have you have I mean, your your duties and against that, it's you have to report those violations. You have to add those um, extremists in in a certain lists. Um, we can talk about that in, in a minute. Going back to 2014, as you said, because it's an interesting that in Yemen, people view the war when the war started between Al Qaeda, between sorry, between the Houthis and uh, Saudi Arabia in two different time frame. In North Yemen, you would hear that the war started in September 2014. In South Yemen, you would say that the war started in March 2015. And that's that's when the Saudi Arabia coalition start start bombarding Yemen with airstrikes. Yes. Correct. So it is interesting that the division kind of like even among us as Yemenis when the war started based on the region, because when the Houthi started um, and took over the 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 capital Sanaa, it was within few hours in September 2014, and they took control and they started expanding all the way from. Sana to the to the to the south, and they took cities and cities and cities after cities. However, how, how, what was the scope of their conquest in terms of landmass? A quarter of the country, half the country. Sana, of course, was a critical, very very important victory mm-hmm. for them, being Sana what it is as the largest uh, in a city. But uh, in terms of conquest, landmass, how far have they gone? They have, well, at the beginning of the war, they have gone so far. So to look at kind of like Yemen geographically, you have Sana'a is the capital, and then you have Aden, which is a small town in southern Yemen. So if you control these two cities, means that you control the whole Yemen. So their aim and their goal, going from Sana'a all the way south, marching, they controlled Adala, they controlled, um, it took it took them a, a, a quite of kind of like a fight uh, to get into Lahj, which is before Aden yeah. uh, and other provinces in South Yemen. They got a very good resistance uh, in Lahj and then they were out of the blue, they were in Aden. So there was a huge fight in, in many in many kind of like, you know, um, uh, districts in, in, in Aden to get control out of it. And it was a huge fight for almost like, um, I would say, for almost three to four months. However, we need to think about or we need to look at that. By the time the government already evacuated the president, the, the previous president by the time, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, he was evacuated from his villa in a secret mission to Saudi Arabia. And, and he got there and started operating with the military and giving orders. So the Yemeni government relied on a lot of individuals on the ground to block the Houthis and have some sort of kind of like grounds. Um, um, you also kind of, the, the, the Yemeni conflict, it's kind of like, it's a, it's a little bit complex because you have also the previous, in 2011, 2000, the previous president, um, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was a huge president, a huge support for the Houthis to take over Sana'a within three hours or four hours. Um, um, 
So you had the, the previous president, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, you had the former pre president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, you have the Houthis. All of these um, key players played a key in kind of like, you know, who we support, what's our agenda, um, uh, what structure that we need to tackle first. And for the Houthis, so this, this is kind of like where what I felt conflict got home. Um, so my, 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 my organization was working and a lot of the organizations were uh, working and functioning. And when the Houthi entered the city, entered Aden and the other provinces in, in, in South Yemen, we realized that international staff had to be evacuated. So they were evacuated immediately and I'm not gonna lie because a lot of my staff, my, my team members also like left the cities and went to villages, remote villages to save themselves and their families. I didn't have anybody there. And, and, and unfortunately I had my family and we had to kind of like, you know, uh, stay in where we were. So I continued my work. And this is another horror that I, I witness, uh, not in terms of like child recruitment, but in terms of like, who's, a, who's the target? How can we get control? Um, so I decided to continue my work on documenting human rights violations because by the time there was a lot of groups recruiting everybody, everybody is grabbing a gun, uh, going to the front lines to fight the Houthis. So we're talking about you drive your car, you literally see 12 years old, 13 years old in a checkpoint, holding guns equipped and well and ready. Who recruited them? What they were doing? They, the, the mission was just like fighting the rebels. The mission is we're going to stand by our government and we will fight the rebels. And you got, after that, you got the, the Saudi-led coalition who also like supplied individuals with a massive amount of weapons to fight the Houthis. And when you again, say individuals, you mean kids? Kids, 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 kids and adults, and both. Everyone, this is the thing, is kind of like everyone who's capable to hold a gun is ready to fight. Are you so ready to fight? Saudis deliberately also gave weapons to young, you know, to serve. Massive amount. Yeah. Massive amount was delivered. Was was delivered. Was delivered and dropped in boxes. We we documented that. We have. I have pictures of those boxes. Kind of. I, I would say that the the most recent weapons been kind of like for individuals to take a fight, and that was the reaction of the Yemeni government to gain some grounds. So at this, at this particular juncture, have you come across, have you heard of, of Iran's involvement and to what extent? Yeah, there but, was, um, it was, it was a quickly, it was a quick turnaround that Iran was involved and people on the street, people start talking that we actually, we actually encountered Iranian soldiers on the ground. So, so Iran did not just send equipment and military hardware, but also in fact, is it whether Iranian soldier or militia recruited, um, not necessarily Iranian with the Iranian uniform? That for me would be hard to answer, but I definitely would say that we had, um, you know, a, a lot of the Yemenis, they have kind of like brown skin. When you see someone yeah. who's pale, part of the kind of like, um, um, the uniform is different. We have seen pictures that kind of like went virals on the internet that the, that the Iranian has not, because at the beginning of the war, we thought that Iranian only supplying weapons and only supplying military logistics 
and military um, support and intelligence for the Houthis. However, over and over and over, after, after, after maybe a couple months, we have seen, I think we, I think we read in, in the news, because when I started talking about the Houthis, I always said that Houthis backed by Iran. In 2014, if you go to all of the news, it was hardly mentioned Iran in any articles. And I, that, that's kind of like, that's where kind of like I, I took a, a platform and I said like, there was a huge support, there was a huge um, military and intelligence support from Iranians to the Houthi rebels. And then after that, we have seen or we discovered there was a, a huge, um, there was a, six of the Houthi uh, militia leaders went to Iran a year ago, received a military, heavy military training. And that was kind of like brought up in so many other investiga journalist investigations. So we identify some Iranian there. Have they also sent uh, children, like under age 15 or under, there from Iran? I'm not aware. Um, yeah, I'm not aware of that. But I would say definitely that the Houthis and the Yemeni government use children, use anyone who is capable of holding a gun to yeah. to be on the front line. But not necessarily Iranian. I haven't yeah. seen that, and I haven't witnessed that, and I, um, I, can't, I can't say that. Yeah. Now, we know, you know, the extent of suffering the children have been going through and continue to do so. So from your um, investigation, you know, we, we hear numbers, I mean, astronomical numbers in terms of how many children have died in the war. Um, some say in the tens of thousands, some mm -hmm. say in the thousands. But we also know that in terms of uh, food insecurity, I mean, millions, we mm have -hmm. millions, actually were on the verge of starvation. What is your uh, take on that? What, what have you witnessed yourself as far as uh, that goes? Yeah, starvation, um, starvation started. You can, so I was in Yemen in 2014. I came to the U.S. in 2015. Uh, so I witnessed I witness the, the shortage in supplies, the shortage in fuel, the shortage in food prices, the, the rise of... A black market where if you want to have formula for your baby you're going to have to go and buy it from the black market however that black market is way expensive that out of reach from the individuals ordinary um, uh, yemenis that they can reach so the starvation started um, right away you can tell because in 2014, Saudi Arabia put a blockage on any supplies to come to Yemen, whether that through airlines or air, or ports. Uh, so we kind of like that was that was the start. Uh, the blockage was by the Houthis and and uh, and Saudi Arabia as well. So the Saudi coalitions, both knowingly knowing that this can cause starvation on right. mass. Right. 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 There is a saying that what happened in Yemen, and there is a saying that among a lot of Yemenis that the Houthis caused this horror, the Houthi caused this starvation. Um, however, with a lot of the Houthi supports right now, with the rise of the Houthi supports in Yemen and the fear of prosecutions, the fear of not following or the fear of speaking up. A lot of them are taking the side of the Houthis that this is, and also like the narrative that they've been kind of like spreading out. The, Houthi, the Houthis narrative that it's been kind of like in Twitter and any other platform, social media platforms saying that the Saudi-led coalition is blocking supplies from getting to Yemen. The Houthi, uh, sorry, the Saudi-led coalition is bombarding 
uh, heritage sites in Yemen, which is correct, which is right. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. Uh, the narrative that they've been kind of like utilizing to gain power and gain more allies within within kind of like individuals in Yemen, it's been kind of like huge. And they have done a tremendous job in, in it, actually. And a lot of now, a lot of the Yemenis are looking at Saudi-led coalitions as the first enemy. However, there is another, there is a huge division between who started the war and what groups that we are following or what groups are we thinking that they are doing right. But also like you're gonna look at the, you're gonna look at that since 2014, there was no presence of Yemeni government, official legitimate Yemeni governments in Yemen. And that's another, that's another layer of um, um, power, another layer of where is the Yemeni government functioning from Saudi Arabia while people are starving, while children are eating. The, the, it breaks my heart to see kind of like my people boiling. There was a, there was a video that went viral on social media that boiling, uh, boiling, uh, I'm getting emotional here, um, boiling leaves in water in a pod so they can feed their children. So this is where this is this is where we are right now, and there is a huge disappointment among a lot of Yemenis that no one cares, and <laughs> giving also like now uh, the 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 political atmosphere that is going around the world and the war in Ukraine right now, Yemen is getting absolutely zero attention in the media. You you will hear rarely about Yemen. We just heard about it because of the ceasefire and the meeting that was kind of like done from different or the Yemeni government the Yemeni government resigned, the president resigned recently. And that comes also with a lot of negotiations that it's happening between international communities. So since the ceasefire was two is like four communities, four four months or something like right. that. Uh, have you been been following it obviously from the outside? Right. What is you have still contacts there who keeps you to keep you informed about what's going on? For example, in connection with food supply, has it improved because of the ceasefire? No, unfortunately. And what, why is that? So unfortunately, there is a demand that was from the Houthi that they need to have the um, Sana'a airport to be back uh, functioning, to, to be back and kind of like you know their their flights and all of that. And that was one of the demands that the Houthi did. Um, so right now we do have that airport open. So I, I'm I'm gonna give you a little bit of a, a snapshot of what's happening on the ground. So in North Yemen, the in, inflations, um, foreign currency exchange with the local currency is totally different from the South, which is interesting. So that like two different countries, yes. Yes, it as if it is. It is two this different countries. This was even the first war when with Egypt. When Egypt, there basically there were two separate countries. Exactly. In Yemen, and there was Southern Yemen. We're all in. The, well, there were two separate countries. Right. And they finally reunited. Uh, but uh, from my understanding, even though they were united, but the unity really uh, did not translate totally into one cohesive society. Yeah. Am I right to assume no, that? Absolutely. Absolutely, you're right. I think you capture it and you articulate it very well because there was in, in 1990, in, in 1990, 
a lot of the Yemenis felt betrayed and manipulated by that kind of like unifying deal that brought two Yemens into one. Um, so the, the feeling the feeling of betrayed, the feeling that this is not one country. So, and also like it's important to highlight that before the Arab Spring and the war right now, in a lot of parts in southern Yemen, there was a lot of peaceful protests, people marching on the streets and demanding for a separation. You will walk on the streets and you will see that a lot of the Yemenis holding the southern flag and coming together with singing and dancing. And it, it, it would be just kind of like a small gathering. So something that I was born in, in the 80s uh, and kind of like seeing that growing up, even after the, the unification, that people felt betrayed and people felt like we are not one country. And it is important to highlight that this was not something that an international community took in consideration. And kind of like the unifying came as a one deal to bring two Yemen together, but there was a, a huge population felt the opposite. And to what extent do you feel that uh, this separation, uh, in fact, contributed uh, to the war? subsequently between the Houthis and the central government? It, it contributed, definitely. And that's why a lot of the people in southern Yemen took gun and ability and, and stood against the, the, the Houthis because they thought that this is, a, this is another opportunity for them to take what it was taken away from them. Um, so right. that's, one, that's one of the demands. So it, within, within the war in Yemen, there was a huge rise of the southern council in Yemen and that was a strong, a strong, huge presence in southern Yemen where they demanded to be a separate region from the whole Yemen and kind of like demanded to be the southern council um, back into kind of like operation. And right now they have a president, they have a government, they have a presence in UK and UAE, and now they are part of the UN New Deal where we have which is interesting, you talked about the ceasefire and we talked about how the current or the former president resigned a couple months ago and that was a demand to change the structures of the Yemeni government by having six regions to seven regions with different, with the, um, a prime minister who's leading what you want to call it, six different presidents. But this is mostly in the South. This is mostly right now in, in, in this, in, well, the Houthis were kind of like part of the deal, not the, the, the separate, not the kind of like the new structure, but they were part of the deal to... Yeah, this is part of the ceasefire agreement? Yeah, this is part, this is was kind of like part of the ceasefire was the former president's resign, part of the ceasefire yeah, was kind of like restructuring the Yemeni government, part yeah. of the ceasefire opening the Sana'a airport, part of right. the ceasefire because Taiz, which is another another provinces in Yemen, it's under control and siege of the Houthis, and they are still under the under siege of the Houthis. But there is a formal collaboration between the Houthis now and the central government uh, as a part of the uh, ceasefire agreement. Are they working together in any way, the Houthis and the central government uh, in, in Yemen, or I mean, as a part of the ceasefire agreement? I wouldn't call it like they are working together, but I would call it that there is they were in one room of negotiation or kind of like you know collaboration to get Yemen or just kind of like agreed on the ceasefire. So yeah, that the, ceasefire, the implementation of the ceasefire require both sides 
both sides are part of that process. Correct. And to what extent they need to work together in right. order to implement the the peace the, 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 the ceasefire and the, hopefully the peace process subsequent to that. Correct. So the ceasefire has um, uh, demands from both sides. So what the Houthis got so far, their demands been kind of like um, um, achieved. And the Yemeni government's been demand right now by kind of like restructuring the, the, the Yemeni governments, um, kind of like um, opening another hope for kind of like a future govern, government to take kind of like over. Um, however, I would not. This is the thing is kind of like about, about this ceasefire. And this is one of kind of like my, my takeaway from it is that a ceasefire has a demands, but a ceasefire is a temporary. It does not speak to the future of where we are going after this. Yeah, I, I, this is a, in conflict resolution, you know, you start with cessation of hostilities and you try to build on it. Now even President Biden asked the Saudi government to extend the ceasefire, mm -hmm. to ensure the ceasefire is extended. And in the process, that is when you have the ceasefire and there's less bloodshed, or no bloodshed, right. then you begin to develop a process whereby they begin to reconcile with one another. Do you see any sign of reconciliation between the two sides? I, oh, that's, that's a very, that's a hard question because you're talking about both sides and however, I see it more than just only two sides. We are talking about the Houthi militias and we're talking about Saudi-led well, yeah. coalition. <laughs> But what yeah. about what about the Yemeni government? What about, what about yeah. Iranian interventions in? Uh, exactly what I'm saying is the ceasefire, yeah. the ceasefire between the government and Houthis. Right. Houthis are supported by Iran. The government is supported by the United States, UAE, and all of that. But the ceasefire has been agreed upon, not without the consent of the coalition. Right. That's Correct. Fine. So Correct. the consent is being even Iran has to concede, has right. to agree to the ceasefire because Iran has been backing the Houthis all along. Supplying right. them with weapons, supplying them with, like you said, with even uh, soldiers. Right. Whether it's militia, actual Iranian soldiers, or militia that have been recruited to fight on behalf of Iran or in support of the, the Houthis. But the, the outside players, other mm -hmm. than the, uh, the Houthis and the government, right. they have a role in the uh, in influencing. Mm -hmm. And in establishing the ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And now uh, it seems to me, obviously, the United States is urging the Saudis to extend it, to mm -hmm. make sure it is extended. My understanding is the Saudis are not objecting to have it extended because Correct. they realize that this war was, was a horrifying war. They have gained nothing except the fact the Saudis do not want uh, Iranian presence in any form, direct or indirect. In the Arabian Peninsula, you know, for them, I mean, my understanding, they they, they decided to fight and engage uh, against the Houthis because the Houthis were the, basically the proxy for Iran in Yemen, mm -hmm. and being the proxy of Iran Yemen, that means Yemen will exert considerable influence in the Arabian Peninsula, but the six Gulf states, right. uh, you know, consider that to be a sort of uh, a forbidden area for any. Shiite, significantly Shiite present, specifically Iranian, to be to be in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. so, so the ceasefire has been established, I know, from all sides, including right. the outside supporters, have agreed on that. 
Yeah. I want to go back to what you've been focusing on, which is very important. Now, there is a ceasefire. To, to, to the best of your knowledge, did that have already some kind of an impact on improving the, the, the plight of the children uh, in this horrifying war? I would definitely say yes. I mean, we have not been had any uh, airstrikes since the ceasefire, which is a great, which is a great impact. Um, uh, the Houthi-led coalition, uh, sorry, the, the Houthi militia still take, still uh, have a full control of another provinces in, in South Yemen, Taiz. That has not been solved yet. And that's one of the demands that were kind of like part of the ceasefire. Um, so what, what I'm seeing, because your question was about like reconciliation, bringing all of the Yemenis together for hopefully a peace and transitional process within kind of like, you know, within the, the next year or so. And that's where kind of like my, my takeaway from it. When you talk about reconciliation, when you talk about the truth, there is a lot of healing needs to happen from all sides. So yeah. there, there isn't... There that's, is, part, that's part of the work. Exactly. 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 So there is a lot of grievances needs to be addressed. There is a lot of... Uh, so how, how, how are we approaching that and reconcile with the Houthis, and I'm, I'm focusing on the Houthis because they are Yemenis like us. They, we all kind of like Yemenis, and I'm focusing on that. How can we reconcile with that horror, with that? How can our grievances be addressed? And towards the end, are they giving up? Are they going to step down for the benefits of all Yemenis to have one government? Are they going to give up the power right now? Because the power, what they have right now, they are really greedy. They have the power of the control of the capital. Do you think, because when you think about the Houthis group, they were a small group coming from certain areas in, um, uh, coming, coming from Sada, coming from um, um, a small area in North Yemen. And right now they are gaining power. They are gaining recognition. They are, if you want to talk about reconciliation, if you want to talk about ceasefire, they need to be part of the table. They need to be, they need to have a seat around the table. So my, my question is, my question is, and I kind of like, I always kind of like think about that. How can we serve best? How can we serve Yemenis best? What is the best for all of us moving forward? How, we can, how can we reconcile with starvation, with all of these people that have been died, with the people who've been killed by the airstrikes? Where all of this going to go? Where all of these human rights violations going to be addressed? And when? Well, this is exactly the point. That is, you know, there's a power struggle. It is. I, I don't see, I don't foresee any possibility where the Houthis would simply give up their power and simply, let's say, let's sit down, reconcile our differences and build a nation again and start building uh, instead of continue to destroy the country. So I, we don't expect that to happen. And like, like I think, and I agree, obviously, mm-hmm. that the ceasefire as a prerequisite has to continue. That is right. a and the second thing they have to start talking about, uh, we call it reconciliation. That is, what steps can be taken now to alleviate the the, the horror that's taken place? This the food supply, uh, medical supply. Uh, you know, all of this is as a part of the the reconciliation, where both sides need kind of support. Right. Both sides need food. Both sides need medical supply. Both need both both sides need. A re- re- resumption of uh, reconstructing what, what, what has been completely destroyed. 
that is a long year. We will take many, many years to, to take place. Uh, so, so we don't expect that to happen. Right. What do you feel? Oh, my feeling, I mean, today as I'm looking at the conflict, my feeling is that we're probably going to go back to the division of, of, of Yemen. Oh, oh, sure. That is what I, I see happening. That is, in the end, if they don't reconcile, may very well divide Yemen north and south again. The Houthis, by and large, will control Sana'a and the, the, half of the country, and the government will control basically the south, including Aden, right. obviously. I mean, I can see that unfolding. Uh, but is, do you feel this might happen? I think right now we are seeing it happen, whether kind of like in a small segment. It's not, it's not officially kind of like, you know, um, two countries right now, but we are seeing it happen since the Southern uh, Council took control of the South and decide, decided to kind of like in the, uh, full autonomy of the South. So I think that's a huge, that's, um, that's an option still on the table. Um, but I think, I think my takeaway kind of like what, because when you when you kind of like look at other other regions um history of conflict you think about right now the houthis is kind of not trying to compare which one and worse or whatever but kind of like right now we are giving a lot of recognitions of the for the houthis and it's becoming kind of like the other taliban in afghanistan they are the government they are the power um, we need to talk to them. If, if any international community that will take will have to take a decision, they need to be included. So that's kind of like, that's my disappointment of kind of like the whole war in Yemen. We are kind of like, and, and also like just learning about the history of the Afghanistans and Taliban. It is a whole different kind of like, very, very similar to what's happening right now in Yemen. So going back to your question, it is still option on the table that the separation of two countries to unfold itself. And one of it, it's kind of like it's still happening, kind of like dividing that. We have one prime ministers, but we have six to seven presidents underneath them to just kind of like control certain or control a small area in Yemen. And and, um, I'm not sure how wise that was to kind of like take. And I'm not sure also like what the international community reaction once this done to have two countries because the international community welcomed the unification of of two yemens and i'm not sure how that would be as kind of like as you said as the separation or two countries being unfold i'm not sure how that would be welcomed from the international community yeah well you know when we talk about international community i think uh, we have to reduce that pretty much to saudi arabia and its allies and Iran and its allies, exactly. Exactly. The international community. Correct. Just to go back where we started because that is, uh, so there is a ceasefire. To my knowledge, the ceasefire also included part of it, opening supply chain in terms to feed the kid, especially those are starving by to death by the millions. Uh, From your continuing investigation and observations, do you see that happening? Is that this is for alleviating at least for the time being the problem of the food insecurity as throughout Yemen? It is elevating um, access, I would say. Not kind of like, you know, getting food, but access in general, whether kind of like medical supplies, whether food. Um, and it is a positive thing. 
however you look at the economic in, in Yemen, it is it has collapsed. You look at the you look you, you look you look at that you look at the uh, people lost their jobs and their incomes, and so people are scrambling for other avenues for other incomes, and that's where kind of like you know be, being part of being a soldiers or being a, a, a front person with the with the Yemeni government or Saudi-led coalitions or the Houthis, it is another revenue for them to secure income, to just kind of like be on the right side for their benefits and their families' benefit. But I would definitely say it, it, it the, the ceasefire elevated um, access. I'd like to ask you, you know, um, we can talk about this for a long, long time and hopefully another opportunity. I got one final question I'd like to ask you, and that is, what is idea that you have vision, what would you like to see? This is your country, you have affinity to the country, to the people. You still have family there? I do. So obviously your, your, you know, your affinity to the country is very strong, also because obviously you have a family there. What is your vision? What would you like to see happen? Let's say realistically speaking. Right. Uh, we all have a pipe dream sometime, a vision of grandiose, uh, outcomes from something like this. But what is your vision to, uh, of, of the country? What would you like to see happen as a result of this horror, horrifying war that has exacted so much casualty, inflicted so much pain and agony, and basically destroyed the country? Where, where, what do you like to see happen from going forward? Yeah, um, that's a very good question, and I, I don't because sometimes we kind of like we think about imaginary kind of like solution or hope, uh, but to be kind of like realistic, there were times that all Yemenis came together for a better future for Yemen, uh, and that was the time when kind of like the Arab Spring, and I, I would call it the youth revolution for sure, and I'm sure you know from other region. That time we had every single parties and key actors right now in this war or previous wars were kind of like part of planning and hoping for uh, for for Yemen I would I would definitely hope to go back to that I'm not sure if we I'm not sure we will but that's certainly my hope I want to thank you so much Fadia, for, for your taking the time it was my basically my entire adult life this conflict resolution and it was, uh, I mean, I cried with real tears when I was reading and looking at what's happening, what was unfolding in Yemen. Uh, children, after all, uh, they, they, they were born to, to see a world, to see, uh, to have a future, and they were deprived of having any kind of future. And that is, that is the uh, crime that no one can forgive. So thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Elan, for having me and this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.